Well, good morning, Christ Chapel. I want to welcome all of you here in the sanctuary, everybody streaming online, wherever you may be. We're glad you chose to worship with us today. I'd like you to open up your Bibles, whether that's in old form, new form, laptop, iPad. I just need you to open up a Bible, okay? Because we're going to spend some time in the Word, and most of these passages are not going to come up on the screen. So you're going to need the Word of God. And the reason I'm doing that is because I want you to see these verses within their context. I think it's important for us to look at the the whole passage and see what God has to say to us. We're continuing our study in the book of Matthew. And we are in kind of a a new series within a series. Uh, Cody started it last week. He took us into the latter portion of chapter 9 and the first few verses of chapter 10. And we're going to be in chapter 10, verses 16 through 25. Now, in this passage, um, there's good news and bad news. You're very familiar with that phrase, right? Good news, bad news. It usually comes in the form of jokes. And right about now, you're expecting me to tell you a couple of good news, bad news jokes. And I did research them. I went online, and not a one of them I think I could tell in here. I don't know what it is about bad news, good news jokes, but they're filthy. Um, So I'm going to spare you and restrain myself, and really the reason for that is because I think what Jesus Christ has to say to us today is far more important, significant than any cheap laugh I might get from a stolen joke. So we want to hear what Jesus has to say. And in chapter 10, there is good news, bad news. Now, if you recall, Cody introduced this last week, and Chapter 10, Jesus has called his disciples, and he's getting ready to send them out on a short-term mission trip is the way I like to think about it. He's gathered them together, and he's going to send these 12 men out. And we know who the 12 men are because in chapter 10, verses 2 and 3, he lists their names. And smack dab in the middle of the list is a guy named Matthew the tax collector. Now, Matthew is the guy writing this gospel some five decades later as he remembers and recalls the words of Jesus. And Jesus is commissioning these men. He's sending them out. He's giving them instructions about what they're to do. Now, you have to remember, and Cody covered this last week, but I I just want to briefly go back and remember that in chapter 8 and 9, Jesus did some incredible things. He finishes the Sermon on the Mount at the end of chapter 7, and then in chapters 8 and 9, he does a ton of miracles. He, He raises people from the dead. He helps lame people walk. He heals the blind. He Heals someone with a fever. It, it's incredible. He's, he's authenticating his power and authority through these miracles. And it says that the people marveled. And then at the end of chapter 9, Cody covered this last week, it, he basically says, the fields are ripe for harvest, but there's not enough laborers. We need to pray that God will send laborers into the harvest. And then look at chapter 10, verse 1. What happens? He called to him his 12 disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Now, here's what I need you to do this morning. I need you to put on your sanctified imaginations. I need you to imagine that you're there when Jesus is dropping this information on the disciples. The last two chapters, they've watched him heal and cast out demons and literally raise a young girl from death to life. And so, Now what does he tell them? I'm giving you authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and heal every disease and every affliction. And in the next verses, 5 through 14, he's going to basically expand on that mission. 
their commission. What is it you're going to do? Now, we're not going to read these verses, but I do want to summarize them for you. Jesus is basically going to say, you're going to go out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, you're going to go to the Jewish people. And he's very clear, do not go to the Samaritans, do not go to the Gentiles, only go to your own people. The 12 disciples were all Jews, and he says, that's your mission, that's your audience. Just go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then he says, I want you to preach the message of the kingdom, the same message John the Baptist preached and Jesus preached, repent for the kingdom is near at hand, it's in your midst. And then he says, I'm going to give this incredible power to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to cleanse lepers, and then, incredibly so, raise the dead. Now stop for a second. As the disciples hear this, what are they thinking? As you hear this, what are you thinking? Wow, that's incredible. This, this, is, this is heavy stuff. This is incredible stuff. We're going to do what Jesus did, but he's not done. In these verses, he goes on and tells them, your instructions are to give it away. You freely received it, now give it away. This power will be given to you. Don't charge for it. Don't expect any compensation for it. Just give it away, just like Jesus did. And then he gives them a, a really incredible authority or power. He says, you're going to be able to determine who's worthy. When you go into these towns and villages, You'll determine who's worthy by virtue of, do they receive your message, the message of the kingdom? Do they receive you as my emissaries or ambassadors? And if they don't, you're to shake the dust off your sandals, turn away, and leave them behind. And in doing so, you're condemning them to judgment. Now, that's heady stuff. That's some pretty incredible authority. And so all of this, if you're thinking like the disciples, is really pumping them up. They're excited. They can't wait to get started to go on this incredible mission trip where they're going to have power and authority. Demons will be subject to them. Diseases will be no match for them. And I can only imagine how excited they are, and probably the most excited of them all is Peter because he's that kind of personality. These disciples are anxious to go and get started. They're, they, they're, they really think they're going to be religious rock stars. I, I truly believe that. Man, people are going to be attracted to us. I mean, we're going to be like Jesus, and we're going to do the things that Jesus did. And so crowds are going to follow us, and we're going to have notoriety, celebrity status. It's going to be great. That's the good news. And it is pretty good news, but then immediately following that is the bad news. We all hate bad news, right? Well, the disciples are not going to like this, and it begins in verse 15. Listen to what Jesus says. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. What town? Any town, any village, any home that refuses your message, the message of the kingdom, the call to repentance. Any town that refuses to see you as my ambassadors, it would be better off for them or for Sodom and Gomorrah than for them. He starts talking about judgment. Talk about a change in mood. It went from something really positive, proclaiming the kingdom, healing, casting out demons, and now he's talking about judgment, and specifically a coming day of judgment. There's a dramatic shift in the mood here. That's why I want you to be able to see the whole passage, because verses 1 through 14 are extremely positive, and then suddenly it goes negative. 
judgment. A judgment worse than that of Sodom and Gomorrah. And as we continue through the book of Matthew, we're going to find out that Jesus continues to drop this bad news on the disciples as they move along their trajectory from Galilee to Jerusalem and eventually to the cross for Jesus. He's going to continue to drop bad news, but for a reason. Flip over to chapter 11. Beginning in verse 20, Jesus is going to again share what appears to the disciples and to us as somewhat bad news. It says, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent, refused the message. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would, have been, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. All of this was news to the disciples. This talk of judgment caught them off guard, I'm sure. They didn't understand. I thought we were going to go out and do miracles. I thought we were going to cast out demons and speak in your name and draw crowds. And suddenly you're telling us some really negative news. It's interesting that Jesus references three cities, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. All were Jewish communities that were in the northern part of Galilee around the Sea of Galilee. And in all three places, Jesus had done miracles and preached and taught. And it's more than likely that many of those people had been at the Sermon on the Mount up in that northern region. They had heard Jesus speak. And he says, yet they refused my message. And he says it will be better off for Sodom and Gomorrah than for them on the day of judgment. Now the disciples knew Sodom and Gomorrah. They were good Jewish men who had been Jewish boys raised in the synagogue. They had taught, been taught the word of God. They knew what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis. And we're not going to go there and look at it, but bottom line is God wiped out two entire cities and all their inhabitants, Gentile cities, for their wickedness. And yet he says, it will be better off on the day of judgment for those wicked cities than for the cities of the people of Israel that refuse the message of the kingdom, the Messiah. Here's the deal, the, the bad news gets worse. Jesus continues, and I can only imagine the faces of the disciples as they're sitting there looking at one another going, what happened here? How did we go from healing and proclaiming and doing great works and suddenly it's getting pretty negative? Well, listen to what he says in verse 16 of chapter 10. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. That word behold is a transitional word. It, it, it's signifying that something is changing. It means lo, behold, see, it might be better translated, look out, listen, pay attention. I'm about to change the topic on you. They're excited. They're pumped. They can't wait to get started. And then he says, behold, he's going to pour cold water on their enthusiasm. He's going to drop a bombshell of information in these next verses. Then in verse 17, he says, beware Again, a transitional word that means take heed, 
you better pay attention. You better watch out. You better be wary because things are about to take a turn for the worse. He wants them to be wary, be watchful, keep your eyes open because it's not what you think it is. You see, the future is not as bright as they they think it is. They're, they think it's going to be great. They think it's going to be celebrity status for all the disciples, and everybody's going to flock to them. It reminds me of that ZZ Top song, The Future's So Bright, i got to Wear Shades. They were not going to need shades in the future. It was going to get dark. It was going to get foreboding. It was going to be difficult. I want you to look closely at verses 16 through 23. Let's read them together. And imagine yourself in the sandals of one of the disciples as you hear these words. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak. Or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father is child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, You will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Can you imagine the expression on the disciples' faces? As they look around and they're speechless, they don't know what to say. See, Jesus is telling them news they don't want to hear. And here's what I know. Every one of us in this room, having heard the same words out of Jesus' lips, are going, I don't know if I want to go through that. I don't know if I want to have to experience that. That may be for someone else. That may be happening somewhere in the world, and it is, but you don't want to go through it. Guess what? Neither did the disciples. It was not attractive. It was not pleasant. See, he's telling them that you're going to be like sheep among wolves. What did he tell them in the first 14 verses? You're going to go shepherd the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now they're going to be praise to the predators. You're going to be delivered over to courts, and that word in the Greek means the councils of the Jews that met in the synagogues where they judged their own people. They're going to be accused of crimes by their own people, and it says, then you're going to be flogged by your own people. And after that, you're going to be drugged before kings and governors, and those two terms have to do with Gentile rulership, the Romans. You're going to be accused of crimes against the state and be drugged in before the authorities to answer for your crimes that you didn't commit. Then you're going to get betrayed by your own people and ultimately put to death. And everyone will hate you. I don't care how you look at it, that's bad news. Extremely bad news. He's telling them the days ahead are going to be difficult shepherds becoming defenseless sheep, proclaimers of the gospel being put in prison for having shared that news. They're going to be put to death for having healed in the name of Jesus. And they're reeling. They they can't understand why is this happening? Why are you telling this? 
telling us this. This is our lot. When we go out on this little missionary journey, this is the stuff that's going to happen to us. Do you think any of them are excited about going now? No. And yet, what you need to understand is that everything that Jesus just listed happened to him. It hadn't happened yet. The disciples didn't know it was going to happen. Jesus did. And he's describing all the things that would eventually happen to him. He would be betrayed by his own people. He would be drugged before councils, the Sanhedrin, the high priest. He would be accused of crimes he didn't commit. He would be innocent and yet said to be guilty. He would be taken before kings and governors, Pilate and Herod, and he would be flogged and beaten and mocked and spit upon and betrayed by one of his own and eventually put to death and hated by all. See, Jesus is subtly trying to begin to tell them that the days ahead are different than what you think, and that's why he says you're going to have to be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. Why? Because they needed something. They were going to need something in the future to be able to withstand what's coming. It's amazing how the commentators will spend so much time unpacking that one phrase, wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And yet Jesus spends no time unpacking it. Why? Because I think he knows the disciples got it. It, It's not that difficult. He's basically saying the days ahead are difficult and you're going to need an inner resource to survive, to thrive. Wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom is a cautiousness of character, discernment, wariness, the ability to look around you and, and assess what needs to happen. Jesus exhibited that characteristic in his own life. All throughout the the Gospels, there are occasions where Jesus was in a situation where the religious leaders wanted to kill him. They hated him. They despised him. And in John chapter 8, we have one of those instances where the Jews came to him and they said, now we know that you have a demon. And then in verse 59, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. He escaped. He left. He was wise, he was wary, he knew it was not yet time for him to die, and he wasn't going to die in that manner, and so he was wise. And he says, you're going to need the same thing. You're going to need to be careful and crafty, because I'm sending you on a mission in the days ahead, and you need to complete the mission, and you're going to need to be careful. But how about innocence? That word means to be blameless, pure, free from guile, deceit. No hypocrisy. And he uses the dove, which the disciples, being part of an agrarian culture, knew that that's the symbol of a dove. A dove is not both prey and predator. It's not wicked and righteous. There's no hypocrisy. With a dove, what you see is what you get. And he says, that's how I want you to be. And again, Jesus exhibited these same characteristics. 1 Peter 2.22 says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He never lashed out, no matter what anybody said to him, did to him. They beat him, they flogged him, they crucified him, and he never said anything that would have denigrated his character or the name of Christ. Hebrews 7.26, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. See, I think what Jesus is telling these these men is that you're going to need something you don't have. 
it is going to be tough. It's going to be rough. You're going to go through difficult times, and you're going to need something to help you endure. But what they wanted was the external power that Jesus displayed. Remember the first 14 verses, here's what you're going to go do. You're going to heal, you're going to cleanse, you're going to raise people from the dead. It's going to be incredible. That's what they wanted. And yet what he knew they really needed was an internal character, the character that he possessed. See, they were going to need to be like Jesus in more ways than just exhibiting power. If they're going to make it through the difficult days ahead, they were going to need the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus knew that day was coming. They didn't. This is early on in his ministry with them, and they don't yet know about the promise of the Holy Spirit. But he infers it here in verses 19 through 20. He says, when they deliver you over, and they will is the inference, do not be anxious, and you will be, how you are to speak and what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. See, Jesus is beginning to let them know a secret. You're going to get a supernatural power from on high. You're going to receive the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God. Yes, the days ahead are difficult. They're, they're going to be rife with trouble. He's explained it to them. But you will not be alone. You will not be on your own because you're going to have this power from on high. You know, right before his ascension, after he died, was buried, rose again, and then he got ready to ascend back to his father's side in heaven. Here's what he told them. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You notice the difference here than the verses we read or looked at earlier? Earlier he said, you're going to go only to the lost sheep, the house of Israel. Don't go to the Samaritans and do not go to the Gentiles. What's he telling them now? I want you to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. There's a change taking place. See, this second half of the message, 16 through 23, is telling them about what's going to happen after he's gone. None of this is going to happen on this missionary trip. Now, they think it is, but this is going to come after he's gone, and he's trying to prepare them. See, after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and when he goes back to be with his heavenly Father, it's going to heat up. All the attention is going to go on those men. All the pressure is going to fall on their shoulders. And they're going to think this is unbearable. Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. It's more than bearable. It's more than survivable. Because I'm going to give you a power you've never had before. You can and will endure is what this passage is telling us. I think this is the key to understanding everything he says. We tend to look at all the negative, persecution, betrayal, death, beating. That's where, where our minds go. But the, the real heart of this passage is found in the second half of verse 22. Look at it. The one who endures to the end will be saved. See, the bad news is brother will deliver brother over to death. Father, his child, children will rise against parents and have them put to death. That's bad news any way you look at it. 
But the good news is the one who endures to the end will be saved. You will be hated by all, he says. You will go through difficulty, but you will come out the other side. You know, Jesus, from this point forward, continues to share the less than appealing news of what lies in the future for the disciples. Over in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20, here's what he tells them. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. What's he telling him? The world hates you. I don't know if you realize this, but the world hates you. You may not think it, you may not feel it, but if you're a child of God and a follower of Jesus Christ, inherently the world hates everything about you. That's what he's telling them. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But here's the good news. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Persecution's coming. It's inevitable. It's unavoidable. You don't have to seek it out. This passage is not telling you to wake up tomorrow morning and seek out persecution. You don't have to. It's part and parcel with becoming a follower of Jesus Christ The question isn't whether it's coming, it's how will you respond when it does show up. Here's a better question. How do you respond in your heart when you hear these words that this is what it might be like? For the disciples, they were going to have to decide, am I going to run? Am I going to bolt? Am I going to quit? Am I going to cave in, go back to fishing, or am I going to stand firm? Will I do what I'm called to do? See, Jesus is not suggesting that the disciples or you and I just gut it up. That's not the point of the passage, that we somehow have to manage to make it to the end through lots of hard work. He's not putting that burden on them. He's not putting that burden on us. What he's telling them is that the the ability to endure is guaranteed. How? By the power of the Holy Spirit. It's supernatural. It's so supernatural that it will result in not just making it to the end, but your glorification, being made like Christ, being renewed so that you can spend an eternity with God the Father and Jesus Christ his Son. That word endure just means patiently endure, bear up under. It means to face life's trials by standing firm, and you don't gut that up. You don't self-manufacture it. See, here's what you need to understand. The power to endure to the end trumps the power to cast out demons. It's greater than the power to heal the sick. It's more significant than even raising the dead. Just let's think about it. If, if I cast a demon out of somebody, that's great, but it doesn't save them. If they're outside of Christ, if they don't have a relationship with Christ, their destiny remains the same with or without the demon. If I heal somebody from a sickness, that's wonderful, but they're just going to get sick again. And if they're not in Christ, they will die in their sins. Even if I raise someone from the dead like Jesus did Lazarus, here's, here's the deal. Lazarus got to die twice. And without a relationship with Jesus Christ, that death would lead to an eternity apart from God the Father. See, The disciples are pumped about those things, that kind of power. And Jesus goes, no, what you need is a greater power than that. 
a power that will reside within you. I love what Paul writes to the Romans. And Christ lives within you, so even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. You have been reconciled to God, justified. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as Christ Jesus was raised from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. You have that same power in you. Many of us in the room don't believe it. And that power, Jesus is telling the disciples, when it comes, will enable you to endure the Spirit of your Father, the Spirit of God. You see, our endurance is not based on self-effort. It's not based on trying to stay saved. It's not based on me at all. It's not based on you at all. It wasn't based on the disciples at all. Here's the reality. If you're in Christ, you have a supernatural power that guarantees your endurance. And not only that, your salvation. Christ-like endurance. Look how Jesus brings it back to him in verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they call the master of the house Beelzebul, Satan, which they did, how much more will they malign those of his household? You see, these guys wanted the power of Jesus, but he's saying, are you willing to suffer like Jesus? Are you willing to keep your eye focused on the ultimate prize, your glorification, eternal life? Are you willing to do what needs to be done? Are you willing to, to share in Christ's humility that you might also share in his glory? The book of Hebrews tells us, let us strip, strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. And I know what you're thinking. Ken, that sounds like I got to do something. That sounds like I got, I got work to do. I got to strip off every weight that slows me down. I got to get rid of the sin that trips me up. I got to run with endurance the race that God has set before me. But what does he say next? We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. That's a huge caveat, right? Keep your eyes on Jesus. The champion who initiates, begins, launches, and perfects your faith, finishes it, brings it to completion, culmination consummation. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, dis disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor before God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. Think about Jesus. Focus on him. You see, the ability to stand firm is spirit-empowered, not self-produced. It's not about you. It's not about gutting it up, as I said earlier. It rests on God's word, not wishful thinking. It rests on the promises found all throughout God's word, not on, gee, I hope I make it to the end. Gee, I, I hope I'm strong enough. I hope I get into heaven. That's not what this is based on. It's based on the promises of God and what Jesus Christ has accomplished. That, therefore, it's Christ-honoring, not self-promoting. You can't walk around going, man, I'm halfway there. I'm doing a great job. I think I'm going to make it. No, it's all about him. It's based on what Christ has done and not what we need to do. Now, here's what's interesting. I've been in this church for 41 years. And about this time, you're thinking, okay, now he's going to give me the next steps. Three steps to successful endurance. 
Three tips to making it to the end. How to endure like a champion. No, I'm not going to do that because Jesus doesn't do it. Look back at verse 19. Do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. Why does he say that? They're already anxious. It hasn't even happened yet. And they're already going, wow, when this happens, what am I going to do? What am I going to say? How do we do this? And he doesn't give them a script. He doesn't give them three steps to anything. What does he say? It's not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. They would get everything they need. One of my favorite passages is 2 Peter 1, verse 3. By, the divine power, by his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. You know what everything means in the Greek? Everything. Everything. And how did he do it? Through the, the Spirit. So what are we supposed to do? How do you know you'll make it to the end? You stand on the promises of God. I can't make it any simpler than that. And I know that makes you feel weak. I know it makes you feel like, well, look, God, there's got to be more for me to do. No, stand on the promises of God. Listen to this from the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. The Holy Spirit is in you, and he's the guarantee that everything God has promised will happen. He tells the Philippians, I'm sure of this. I'm convinced. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he who began a good, good work in you will what? Bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So here's my question to you. Do you believe that? I hope you do. And if you do, will you stand on that promise? You know, I was, I was preparing the sermon and, and, and I couldn't help but have this, this song keep coming into my mind and it was a hymn we sung when I was a little boy growing up in my dad's church and it's Standing on the Promises. You may be familiar with it. I want you to listen to these words and think about their impact on what we've just talked about. Standing on the promises of Christ my King, through eternal ages let his praises ring. Glory in the highest I will shout and sing, standing on the promises of God. The author is painting a picture of a saint standing before the throne of Jesus Christ and God the Father, and he's singing the praises of the promises of God. He's there, and he's still standing on the promises. How did he get there? Christ. How will he stay there? Christ. But then it goes on. Standing on the promises that cannot fail. When the howling storms of doubt and fear assail, by the living word of God, I shall prevail. How? Standing on the promises of God. He's taken us back to earth. He's put us in our place and said, you can and will prevail if you stand on the promises of God. He's never failed us. He never will. And we will endure to the end and be saved. Would you pray with me? Well, Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for the assurance that we have everything we need for life and godliness given to us by you because of the death of your son on our behalf and through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And we will endure no matter what the world throws at us. We will make it to the end. That doesn't mean there won't be storms. That doesn't mean there won't be difficulties. It doesn't mean there won't be times when we seem to fail and we, 
We, we lose our hope and our faith, but Lord, you will carry us through the worst storms of life because it's not up to me. It's not up to any person in this room who's in Christ to gut it up to the end, to stay saved, to work it out, to make it happen. Lord, you've already made it happen. And your Holy Spirit is a guarantee that that inheritance will one day be ours. May we stand on that promise today, tomorrow, this week, and for the rest of our lives because you are faithful. And I pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.